Hello and welcome to Women on Top with Holly Madasser, where the conversations focus on women, wealth, and social change. Holly and her guests, who represent many different fields, engage in transparent conversations that reflect professional and personal struggles as well as accomplishment. Some are making strides to address societal problems. Others have chipped away at the proverbial glass ceiling. All are supporting the financial future and well-being of women. Through these conversations, we learn about embracing a purpose and lifting others up while ensuring our own future success. Now, here's your host, Holly Madasser. Um, well, hello, everyone, and hello, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us here today. Hi, great to be here. Thank you. Well, today we have Stephanie Link. She is the Chief Investment Strategist and Portfolio Manager of Hightower, a national wealth management firm. She's also a regular contributor on several CNBC shows, so you're probably used to seeing Stephanie on um, Halftime Report, Closing Bell, and Squawk Box. So, Stephanie, we're honored to have you here on our little podcast. I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you're welcome. Well, most of us who've seen you on TV think of you as a big investment analyst and strategist. So I guess what I want to do today is um, show our audience who the real Stephanie is. Who is the woman behind the tycoon? (laughs) I'm humbled and honored. (laughs) Well, I mean, it is is kind of fascinating to be um, a woman in finance these days. I know personally, I'm a financial advisor and I think about one in four or five advisors are women. So I can't imagine how many women run money like you do, actually. Do you have a stat for that? Well, I will tell you, uh, when I first entered into the business, uh, I wasn't a PM. I was an, an institutional sales assistant. But I was one of three women on a floor of 500 on a trading desk. Oh, my and- we and, and for fun, I'll just tell you, we, we couldn't wear pantsuits, we couldn't wear sleeveless anything, and we certainly had to have stockings on even in the summertime. So honestly, I think we've come a long way. Uh, you've come a long way too. We, we kind of come up the same way in, in just different roles and responsibilities. But the experiences I think that I've had, I'm sure that you've had, really shaped the foundation of why I wanted to be, who you know, and where I wanted to get into into this uh, into this business. Yeah, so I knew you grew up in New Jersey, um, but what inspired you to, I mean, was it proximity to Wall Street? What inspired you to get into this male-dominated industry? And kudos to you for getting out on that trading floor with all the tall, tall men. <laughs> Thank you. And you know, I will tell you this, um, just as a funny side note, uh, I did not speak one word when I got on the trading desk, because I was right out of college, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't speak one word for like three months to anybody other than my two bosses. It was so intimidating. But you know, you learn from experiences and you learn from hard times or challenges. Uh, and I overcame that. But I actually grew up in a family of um, all FAs. They're all at the wirehouses. They're not here yet at Hightower. I'm trying to persuade them. But uh, they were very much focused on the client and really growing their business. At the time, they called them brokers and not financial advisors. Um, but they are still all in the business. But my father, my stepmother, my brother, my uncle, 
my uh, my step uh, my my other stepbrother too. So a lot of involvement in the business uh, growing up. And I knew um, it, they were very focused on being successful and also in making money. And uh, I thought, wow, that, that's interesting. I could work hard if I can make money or, you know, and so that kind of thing. Um, so my family really was very instrumental in at least getting me involved in the financial services community and what it even was, even though I didn't really know what it was growing up. But I was very lucky to be uh, working uh, in my father's branch at one point when I was probably seven or eight years old and I was just helping out organizing, cleaning up and that sort of thing. But I started at a very early age watching that ticker go across the screen um, and it was very appealing to me. The hustle and bustle was very interesting to me. The, the fact that you could learn something new every day was very interesting to me. And I didn't even really understand what that was at that early of an age, but I was exposed to it. And so my family was very driven and it kind of, helped me at least formulate what I wanted to do or where I wanted to be when I got graduated college. So when I graduated college, I wanted in, in Boston, I wanted to be in the financial capital of the world. And that's New York City. At least I still believe it to be in New York City, even though we've had some trials and tribulations given COVID and that sort of thing. But I do think that this is the place if you're looking for, uh, in terms of looking to build your career, even start your career, um, I think that in my mind, that's really where I wanted, really where I wanted to, to start. So it, it didn't matter to me. I just wanted to get to New York. I wanted to get to a big firm and I wanted to just learn. And I, I did all those and, and then some, and, and it's been a, it's been a wild ride. So I, I think you mentioned to me that your dad, I don't know how old he is, but he's still working, right? He is still working and he is 84 <laughs> years old and he is, uh, it's a, it's, it's funny, you know, he's always been one of my mentors in, 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 in life, obviously, but also in the business world, he could always understand what, where I was in my career, what, 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 what really, um, he knew me as a person and my personality and what drove me. And, um, so he was very, very helpful and he still is, we, we talk about stocks all the time and he's still very engaged. Um, I will say uh, at a very early age, my father, um, he actually put me on the tennis court at, at, at three years old. Um, he actually then put me into basketball when I was five years old and <laughs> all kinds of sports. And he really, what he, what he was trying to do is obviously teach discipline, teach teamwork, teach individuality, and also to keep me out of trouble. So I think it worked. Um, and, uh, and so I, I'm very grateful that he is still around and still very much interested and, and we have a, a wonder, wonderful special bond. Well, I, I do think that there's a corollary between sports and business. I mean, it is about competition, right? Yes. Oh, it, it's, yeah. about, it's about winning. And, and, and I know if you're doing something like running money, you know, I mean, that's the name of the game, right? Talk to us a little about that. It's interesting, and it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful point you make, um, and it is uh, all about like the competition and wanting to win and being type A, um, and and really being humble at the same time. And I think the, all those characteristics are all in sports and they're all in business. And running money is the same, especially when you run a portfolio. While I know your client, you and your clients are long term investors, as am I. I want to win every day. I want to beat the market every day. I want to do well by your clients and you. And so therefore, we, we as PMs kind of put all that pressure on, but we're used to that pressure, quite frankly. And that comes from being used to being 
in sports and having the pressures there um, and having the competition and the spirit uh, in, in involved in sports. So it's been a very, um, it's very synergistic. It's sort of odd. I would have never thought it, uh, but it is, uh, it has helped me. And, uh, you know, I, I'm driven every day just by looking at the markets. And if I can't see my screen, I go a little berserk because I want to see what's going on. I want to know everything and, and that sort of thing. Well, I mean, I have to say I'm a little envious of you that you live in New York City. The I do agree it's the financial capital of the world, mainly because you don't have to apologize for being competitive and wanting to win and for being type A. I find sometimes, you know, living in North Carolina, I, I feel like I'm having to mitigate my type A personality a little bit. Like I, I need to calm down and put a lid on it a little bit. And that's mm -hmm. just not who I am. So, uh, you know, you got to be true to yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to be true to yourself because that's who you are. And that's, and that's what your clients want from you. They are choosing to actually invest with you because they have confidence and you have confidence in yourself. And it hasn't been easy to get that confidence over these many years, but you have built it brick by brick by brick. And so your clients are very lucky to have you. And, uh, and I feel for you in terms of trying to tap the brakes a little bit, but you know what, you are you and you should be you and be proud of that. And I'm proud of you. Thank Well, thank you. And I'm definitely proud of you. You're really an inspiration to women in the industry and women all over, actually. It's just great to see you out. I hate to call it a man's world, but it still kind of is in the world of finance and you're, you're doing it. I mean, you're on Jim Cramer. I, I turn it on and I'm like, there's my Stephanie. She's on national <laughs> television. <laughs> and, and you worked with Jim Cramer for a number of years, didn't you? I did. I, I, I uh, had been in the business for a while. Um, overall, I've been in the business for 30 years. And so for the first 16, I was on the sell side. I was in institutional sales and I was the director of research. And, and then um, the firm that I worked at closed. And I had just had my daughter um, and I thought, well, I, you know, just going to look around for something that makes sense. And I also wanted to make that transition from the sell side, meaning selling and marketing research to big institutions. I wanted to actually be one of those big institutions and run money and see if I could actually run a portfolio. It's much different um, to, to, to market to people versus to actually run money and to right. run a portfolio. So I was very fortunate to meet. Jim Cramer, and I know he seems very crazy and, and a little out of control. He, he, a lot of that is an act, I will say I will say that, number one. But number two, I think he's one of the smartest, um, most brightest financial minds in the industry. Um, we used to butt heads a little bit in terms of the portfolio and running the portfolio and having ideas, um, uh, but that's what makes a team really great. Um, because you want to always know what's on the other side. I might like a stock. He might not like a stock. Well, why? And then we would defend each side and make a decision. So I was able to run his charitable trust, trust portfolio and for seven years and learn quite a bit about running a portfolio. I already knew markets. I already knew stocks. I already knew sectors. But running a portfolio is quite different. And one of the things that he taught me that I, feel, that I think is really invaluable uh, is always try to find the number one or number two uh, company in an industry, in any given industry, and try to find an opportunity to buy it when it gets hit or when it you know pulls back or when it you know goes down for whatever reason. 
uh, because the number one or number two company in any given industry is number one or number two for a reason. They have good management, they have good balance sheets, they've got good cash, they do the right things with their cash, right? They're buying back some stock, they're increasing dividends, they're investing in their business. And so that's one of the things that he taught me early on, because I used to go for the third or fourth company in an industry that was really cheap on a valuation basis. You know what, in the long run, you want to own quality, again, good management teams, proven execution. And so that was really a wonderful lesson that he taught me. Yeah, it's interesting, the the fundamentals that you look at. I, I always tell my clients too, it's not necessarily what you sell for. The money is made when you buy. And yeah. so you're, you're looking for a bargain opportunity, but you're not going to go down in quality. You still want a really good company. Absolutely. And if you could buy that really good company that is down 10% or 20% or whatever it is, if you could buy that really good company on sale and to your point exactly, buy low, Yeah, that's when you make your money. Sometimes it's really hard to do that. Buy low, sell high. That's what everybody says to do. That's a hard, everyone says they're going to do it and it's very hard to do. Yeah. You've got to be disciplined. You've got to wait. You've got to wait yes. for the opportunity and not just jump on you know, the flurry of the market, everybody's interested in something that just drives the price up. And that's the last, that, that's when you don't want to buy, right? That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So I have a question for you, because I do think the pandemic, as well as what happened with George Floyd, the disparity between the haves and the have nots, as we've dealt with this crisis, have sort of changed a little bit the national psyche around what it is we're looking for from companies. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of a shift going on between shareholder value and stakeholders in companies. And I guess I'm wondering when you run money, when you're looking at companies and portfolios, how much attention do you pay actually to the way that a company not just treats its shareholders, but their employees? during the pandemic to, you know, their communities in terms of their consumers? What are they putting in their products? Is it false advertising? How do you, how do you factor that in to the decisions that you make on a portfolio level? It's interesting because you are the expert and that your book is one of the best on, on, on earth. Everybody should read it. The ESG, um, real, the focus of ESG and the importance of ESG and it's interesting. I've never really focused on ESG. Sorry, that was our that was our CEO who just said goodbye to me. But oh, I've never because <laughs> he's leaving to go to the hi, Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> leaving to go to the airport. So anyhow, um, I feel like ESG is so important. Even if whether you are very strict in terms of your discipline and what you're looking for in various different companies, or maybe you're just looking at companies that happen to fall into the camp of being ESG, even though you don't really mean to. So I went back and I did kind of an, an analysis on my portfolio. Uh, I've done it a couple of times, especially after meeting you uh, earlier in the year and, and, and the importance of ESG. And I thought, well, let me just see what screen my portfolio because I have never really been that focused, although I'm very aware of ESG. So I went back and about 94%, I just did it last week again, 94% of the companies that I own in my portfolio are ESG compliant, meaning they kind of have one or two or three of the characteristics or maybe even more. Um, and so they really are, so, so I guess just what my point is, is I already kind of think that way. Um, and 
uh, I think it's important to think that way because if it's proven, and you know these numbers better than I do, but it's proven if you have fundamental analysis with an ESG overlay, your returns are superior versus just doing fundamental analysis. And so I wasn't doing it on purpose, but then I sat back and said, I know why I own these companies because they are doing the right things. And they have proven to do the right things over the years. And by the way, if they're not doing the right things, maybe they're trying to do the right things. Right. I own a, I own an oil company, and they're like, we want to get to you know you know we want to get emissions down. We want to get you know all kinds of clean in in clean energy involved, and we want to get compliant by 2030. Well, that's fine. They're not that they're not there now, but they want to get there, and so they are taking action, even if it does take the uh, a longer time. Uh, and so I do think it's an extremely important point and theme. And uh, as I say, your clients are super lucky because you're focused on that and uh, you're spot on to be focused on that. Well, thank you. You know, I, I do find that there is a misnomer about ESG. Some, some people think that this is a way to punish companies, you know, that that somehow we're trying to go after them and and, and that we disapprove of them. When in reality, it's a message. It's just a signal. We're just saying, look, company, we actually think you're going to do better in the long term if you care about your employees and if you care about your consumers and you care about the planet. Because in a day and age where we have social media and companies really have to worry about their reputational risk, it makes all the sense in the world that if a scandal breaks out because of mismanagement, it's going to cause shareholder value to go down, right? In a, in a huge way. So you may make money over time and then all of a sudden something were to come out and you lose that entire value. That's a risk you do not want to take. I will tell you what's a big, big no-no for me. And that is the voting shares. And so there are companies out there that have two classes of voting shares um, uh, two classes of stock, and, and then one is the voting shares of the of the management team, and the other is of kind of the shareholders. When there is a company um, that is out there that has for, that has the CEO and maybe the CFO or the founders that have 50, 60 percent of the voting rights, I just find that appalling. I mean, there's so much in terms of what companies do that, you know, if they're not doing the right thing, that can be troublesome. But that to me is appalling because why are we shareholders? We're shareholders so that we can help make a difference too. We believe in this in the strategy and the philosophy. And we as shareholders want to say in kind of the growth of the company. And so if you have a company where the, the founders have that much control, you have no say. You are at the whims of what they want to do. Now, to be fair, they were co-founders. They're brilliant, likely. The reason the stock is gone and, you know, did an IPO or whatever they did, there's a reason. They were successful. So I understand all that. And you don't necessarily want to get in the way of the experts. I just don't feel like a 50 or 60% ownership of the voting shares makes any bit of sense whatsoever. And there's one company I'm thinking in particular, but I won't, I, I won't, uh, I won't mention the company, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a company that is, um, you know, it, it's just, it's had a nice run. It's had a nice move. And I, I just scratch my head and say, you've got to think a little bit differently and yeah. not follow the frame. Yeah. I think more and more though, companies are seeing that even if they don't give their shareholders voting rights, shareholders will boycott products. I mean, like there's a reason that um, companies 
change, you know, Aunt Jemima changed its name. And, you know, this is all due to pressure from the public. Yep. I guess I'm wondering, are you seeing more and more demand um, on your side from clients who are asking more of companies? Or is this just at the retail side? Because I know my clients really want to invest in alignment with their values. Absolutely. And, and, and as an institutional investor and the clients that I have and the advisors I talk to, it's absolutely and 100% an important piece. Because as you mentioned, if you do things in a very ESG friendly way, it's, it's, it's the right thing to do. And it will over time be a really good value add for the company and for investors and that, you know, the stock price will follow what the company is doing and if the company can execute. And if they're doing all the wrong things, particularly on ESG, that's a problem. That's a big, big problem. And there are big firms out there, my prior firm specifically, one of the largest ESG in, uh, investors, Nuveen, but uh, they, they had a 30 person team just looking at all of these things and then they came back to the PMs and when, when I was a PM, okay, these are on the ESG friendly list. Take a look, double, double think about is if they're not on this list, why do you really want to own the company that you own? And it just really made me think like, yeah, what, why do I have to be like, why would I have to do that? If this is so good and the returns prove over time that if a company can execute on ESG and then, then, then the earnings can follow, I think it's a no-brainer, quite frankly. So yes, it's a big topic, huge topic on the institutional asset management business. Yeah, um, just for our um, audience out there, let me just share that there was a meta study done. A meta study is a study of other studies. So this group looked at 2,200 other studies going all the way back to the 70s and found that an ESG portfolio actually outperformed a non-constrained portfolio. And by non-constrained, I meant no SRI, no ESG, no nothing. You just buy whatever you want. So the ESG companies actually did better 90% of the time or equal. I I 100%, I've seen similar studies too. Um, and in fact, as I say, my, my last uh, position, my last job employer, they did, they did their own testing too. And they came out with the exact same numbers. And I was just floored. Why as a PM would I not want to do this? A, it's the right thing to do. But B, then you can get the returns as well. And C, you're doing the best interest for your shareholders, for the people that are investing for, in you. Yeah. So Stephanie, as a portfolio manager or, or now running money the way that you do, um, I know that you have to be in tune to the markets and the economy 24-7. It's not like you get to take a time out. So as a, as a mom, and I know you have a lovely daughter, and, and, and as a wife, and as a member of a family, how do you juggle it all? I mean, what, what do you say to women out there who are struggling with that work-family-life balance? How did you do it? it it's very hard. Um, I actually started late. We started late in our family. Um, I wanted to, in the beginning of my career, have a career, and 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 not and because what I the way I the way I thought about it is to be successful, you have to work really hard. You have to work harder than the next person, hardest. You have to be the first person in the office, the last one to leave. You have to 
under promise over deliver. Uh, and you have to make sure that you have mentors that can help you along the way. I was very, very fortunate. Fortunate Not only was my dad a mentor, but the two folks that I, I worked for at my very first job, they were quite helpful. Um, and so I just wanted to keep my head down and focus. And um, I'm not saying that having a child is a distraction, but I just wanted to really commit 100%, 110% to my career to see you know, how it would evolve. And so I was later in life that I am older than um, many, many of my friends and having my daughter. But at the time when I was 37, I thought it was the right time. I had spent quite a bit, of, quite a much, uh, about many years in the business working really, really hard. And we, well, I thought, yeah, that was the right time. So did my husband. He was also, he is also in the business and he thought the same, that let's just see how it all goes. And so you're never going to feel content, not the way you and I work, right? Not, not, not the way you and I think. We're always pushing the limits. We're type A. We want to be successful. But there comes a time when you step back and say, okay, well, there's probably more in life than just the job and just money. Uh, and let's see and try it out. And I will tell you, it, it, was, it was very hard in the beginning because it was um, trying to juggle a whole bunch of things. Um, I, 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 I go back to, to Jim Cramer because when my daughter was six months old and I had just started to work for him, he actually uh, had hired me and, and, and I was on my way. So that Sunday night, I call, I said, you know what? I can't leave my six month old. I can't believe it. You know, for all these years, I wanted only a career and, and now I have this both and I don't know how I'm going to do it. So I called Jim and this was many years ago. This was before any kind of remote work uh, was it was really happening. Um, this is still when you actually called versus texted. And so I called him and I said, I can't come to work for you. And he goes, wait a minute, why? And he and I said, because I can't leave my six month year old. I can't do it. I can't I can't miss her every single day. It's just this is not what I would be happy doing. And uh, so he said, OK, well, what, what is it going to take? And I said, uh, I'd like to work from home a few days a week. He said, I said, um, he said, what, well, well, how many days? What do you want to do? And I said, uh, maybe two days. And he said, how about this? Take three and try to enjoy your baby and, uh, and work for me. And oh, by the way, while as wonderful as that was, and it really truly was, and it just shows you he does have a heart. Um, but it, I worked harder than anything when I was at <laughs> home. I practically didn't even see my baby. You know, she was in a, she was right sitting next to me as a, you know, an infant. And I'd be like, at least I get to see her. And then I'm in the same room with her. But it was, it, it, it just speaks to, um, you know, having, asking for something if you want it and hopefully working for somebody that can be flexible. And again, as I said, I worked really hard, harder than anything in this planet when I was at home and, and uh, but it worked. And you know what, it was so rewarding to have asked and gotten a solution and then it all worked out. That's not to say that it was easy because it really wasn't. My poor daughter who's 14 years old, she doesn't know anything. She doesn't know me without an open laptop and a Bloomberg terminal open and red and green and, and everything else. So. She, this poor thing, she's like, oh, okay, I guess my mom is into something on the markets and stocks. And, and it is, it, you know, she's learned over the years, I've learned over the years, you just do the very best that you can. And you have to have good help around you. I'm very, very fortunate to have the most wonderful nanny, most wonderful husband. Um, and we all just have to be really organized. 
Yeah, it is tough. It is very tough for women. So I'm glad to hear you say that it's not easy. I mean, I've been a mom myself. I actually took time off like many women do to care for kids. I mean, it is a disruptor and a distraction. There's just no way around it. You're responsible for another human being. And somehow that gets to be more important than a stock price, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) That's perfectly said. But but then the real you comes out, the child starts to get older and you're like, whoa, I missed that action, right? Got to get back in. And so juggling is is not easy. And it's it's really reassuring to hear that um, Jim was was willing and able so long ago when this wasn't commonplace to accommodate that. That certainly is not the persona that he has on TV, I can tell you. I know. And you know, he's still, we still talk all the time. V- now we do via email. So now we're a little bit more cutting edge, but I honestly, when I, I mean, this was many, many years ago. So uh, this is 2007. So uh, a lot has changed and you know, technology as it evolves, it is making it easier for us to work from home. We all have learned from COVID, you know, these zooms and webinars and, and just communicating via texts and that sort of thing. It really has helped. And I do think that it has taught us all a lesson that we should have a little bit of balance. We don't have to all be in the office at the same time. However, it is nice. I'm in the office today. It's nice to see some people on my team and to talk and just to walk up to their office and and just to say hi and last minute kind of conversations, nothing planned. And so there is this work-life balance. And then there's also this work-work balance, right? So um, I I think that's very, very important. I think, um, and you know this about me personally, but 2020 was probably, I'm I'm ashamed to say this because so many people suffered, but it was probably the best year of my life in terms of recalibrating um, that it wasn't all work. I mean, I was quote unquote forced to work from home forced to slow down a bit, reassess my life. And lo and behold, I went off and got married. (laughs) In the most beautiful pictures in the planet of earth. I mean, really, truly, it was a gorgeous, gorgeous picture, gorgeous couple. And so happy that you're happy. Yeah. By the way, like what we do for a living, I think does make us happy because I think we found our calling and what we want to do. But then there's there's another part of being happy, and that is your personal life. That is your family life. That is with your husband. That is taking time off. And let me tell you, for the first 20 years of my career, I did I took very little time off. It didn't take the vacation time. It didn't you know make the extra effort to go out on dates with my husband as much as I would have liked to. And you know what? You have to do those things because you really if it, 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 it's easy just to kind of get holed up in an office and do really well and, and, and build your career. So that's wonderful. That's what you're after. That's what I'm after. And I have been after, but you have to have other parts of your life because you're not going to be truly happy with just a one dimensional type of a situation. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. So um, Stephanie, as you know, our audience is primarily women, boomer women. And today boomer women control about two thirds of the nation's wealth. So this is something on the order of $20 trillion. Pre-pandemic, that was as big as the nation's debt. So this is a huge amount of money. Um, To put it into context for our viewers, the GDP of Australia is like $1 trillion. (laughs) This is is like a huge sum of money. And, and And many women, you know, this is money in women's own names. They can do what they want with it. And, and just like, 
how women don't like to ask for things. They don't like to ask for raises. They don't like to ask if they can work from home. They're timid. They're also timid investors oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And so um, I guess as somebody who's running money in today's day and age where it's, it's unprecedented, the amount of power women have in the United States right now, what if you had one message to give to women today, what would it be? And it's an amazing, some of these stats that you have, my friend, they are just incredible, right? They really, truly are. I'm so proud of, of the women. And yes. here's the thing. There are no dumb questions, but you're not going to learn unless you ask questions. So don't feel like I can't ask that because I'm 60 years old, 50 years old, or however old, and I should know that because I'm this old, right? And I've been in, you know, I've been around for a long time. There are no dumb questions. You should hear some of the questions I ask some of these CEOs that I invested. I don't care if it's a dumb question. I got to get the answer and I have to understand. it. And so that's number one. Number two, number two, you have to find someone that is a competent in the, in the financial services industry, who has some perspective, who's a good listener, and who am I thinking of but you? And you will help give advice. It's true, though. You will help give advice in a very, um, very simple manner. It may be really complex on the back end. And, you know, you know a lot more than, than what your client is saying or thinking or wanting. But you're asking all the right questions to them. They can answer back. They're going to ask questions to you and they'll feel good about that. And it's just knowledge. Knowledge is power and powerful. And the more you can read about things in the market and the economy, it's just another way to actually learn and ask questions, even more questions. So I, t I, I feel like you've got to find the right connection and chemistry with, with, uh, your, the, with, with whoever is advising on the money matters. But uh, once you do that, I think that clients do need and women do need to empower themselves by learning more as much as they can. And I think it's fun to learn something new every day, isn't it? I think so. And I, I think women also can recognize, I mean, generally I find that women really care about the greater good. They don't, yeah. they don't just, they never just care about themselves. They care about their kids. They care about their parents. They care about their community. They care about, you know, the, the condition of the unemployed. They care about lots, the environment, gun control. And so, you know, if you have a lot of wealth, which women do today, you really can make a difference with your wealth by investing in companies and portfolios that are ESG compliant, like yours is, you know, that, that you can actually make, move the needle. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this stat, but less than a third of the population actually believes that the government can solve our social issues. But something like 70% of the population believes that companies can, public companies. Okay. And so if you have the money, why not try it out, right? Sure, absolutely. That's a, another wonderful stat. Uh, I think there's always this debate, public-private, and what, can, what really works. Um, maybe it's a combination of the two. Agreed. But, you know, but, but I do think that the that the public companies really do need to, to be engaged and to be involved and to be able to execute. Because the government may have great ideas. And a lot of the times they really truly do. 
Yeah. But can they execute, right? And so I think there's always, there has to be a partnership. And that's where if you are wealthy or you have money, why not get involved in one way or, or the other? Yeah, and, and potentially have better returns, right? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, exactly. it, it's a win-win. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. You really are an inspiration to all of us. I wish you much success, my friend. Thank you. This has been a delight and I, I can't wait to come back. Thank you. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Take care. Take care. Holly Madasser, CPA, is a partner and senior wealth management advisor at Stearns Financial Group, an investment management firm with offices in Chapel Hill in Greensboro, North Carolina. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Hightower Advisors, LLC, is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Refer to brokercheck.finra.org for more information. This podcast is copyrighted and all rights are reserved. The content of this podcast is for information only and not intended to serve as financial, legal, medical, or any other form of professional advice.